This is the hour of doom. And bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Podcast, a dumpster full of daring do in a disgusting world. And the number one show about medical preparedness, mostly because it's the only show on the interweb about medical preparedness. It's like the Guardians of the Galaxy. If by Guardians you mean elderly, and by Galaxy you mean senior center. <laughs> a bunch of old people. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> and who am I? Why, I'm Joe Halden, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of the award-winning survival website, doomandbloom.net. And here's my wonderful co-host. I'm known as Nurse Amy. My real name is Amy Alton. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. I'm purveyor of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. She's so sharp, she mows along just by rolling on it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that would be easy. We've had dogs that just oh. sort of rolled on the lawn, but they didn't cut it. <laughs> they did like to roll. They did. Yes. That on, was very cute. Something stinky, usually. Oh, God. On this show, you're going to get the conventional medical wisdom, the unconventional medical wisdom, plus absolutely free, incoherent rants by someone who's always talking about the good old days. Hey, whatever it takes to make your family medically prepared for tough times, you're going to hear it right here. But first, you got to listen to this. All information and opinions voiced on the Survival Medicine Podcast are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. We strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Or don't, naked and frayed contestant. A little zombie apocalypse doesn't bother the likes of you, I'm sure. But answer me this. Who's going to keep your family safe and sound when you're really naked and really afraid? You know, what happens if the you-know-what really hits the fan, the hospitals are out of commission, and someone you care about is sick or injured? Well, look at you now. Well, don't look at me. I am just working for the weekend. <laughs> bum, 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 bum. Hey, I'm looking at you, pal. You can bet that when it's least expected, you are elected. So get off your duff and learn some stuff. And why not get some medical supplies while you're at it? Amy can tell you where you'd find some. Absolutely. If she would like to. Would I would like love to. to. Yes. Store.doomandbloom.net. We have hand-packed, professionally designed medical kits, including lots of amazing trauma supplies, just like they carry in the military. That's right. Hey, I want to mention that the fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, greatly expanded and revised, still ranks 4.8 out of 5, on Amazon, over more than 2,500 reviews, still high on bestseller lists throughout the country. If you haven't checked out our greatly expanded new book, you'll find the black and white version on Amazon and the color version at store.doomandbloom.net. We even have a color spiral bound version on our website. You probably would like that. Super special. Super duper <laughs> Super special. Super special. That's right. You know, in a survival scenario, the family medic is going to be called on to care not only for medical issues, but dental issues as well. Military medics during the Vietnam War reported that they dealt with dental problems almost as much as medical. While dental training was relatively informal back then, a special operations combat medic today may actually train to become a special operations medical sergeant, undertaking training not only in dental care, including extractions, but other outside-the-box skills like veterinary as well. Now, when the miracle of modern medicine isn't around to save a damaged tooth we may have to return to tooth extraction as the treatment of choice for most dental emergencies in any situation that involves long-term loss of power the medic will eventually be confronted with a tooth that's gonna have to come out 
and indeed the grand emergency of dental issues is going to be resolved that way in the apocalyptic future. Now, tooth extraction, that's not an enjoyable experience as it is. It's going to be less so in a long-term survival situation with no power and limited supplies. Unlike baby teeth, a permanent tooth is unlikely to be removed simply by wiggling it out with your gloved hand and tying a string to it and the nearest doorknob and slamming. Knowledge of the extraction procedure with limited supplies, however, that's going to be important for anyone expecting to be, to be the family caregiver off the grid. So, yes, you heard me. I'm going to tell you how to extract a tooth. Now, be aware now that it's illegal and punishable by law to practice dentistry without a license. The lack of formal training or experience in dentistry may cause complications that could be much, much worse than a bum tooth. So, if you have access to modern medical care, seek it out. Once the decision has been made to remove a tooth, recent studies suggest that giving 800 milligrams of ibuprofen before a dental procedure helps relieve the post-extraction pain significantly. Have a good supply of this useful medicine in storage for this and a lot of other reasons, and maybe some clove oil to dull the pain. Clove oil acts as a dental anesthetic. Notice that I haven't mentioned local anesthetic injections. In a situation where the you-know-what hits the fan, you're going to be off the grid. You're not going to have lidocaine to use as a local anesthetic. I write about situations where there's no functioning medical or dental infrastructure, so I'm explaining this procedure as if we were off the grid and stuck in an earlier era medically, which is what we're going to be thrown back to if something really happens. It may sound unrealistic or even barbaric to you, but disasters happen and the medic may find themselves in an austere setting. The materials used are available in unique specialty kits, like the unique one we actually have in our own store, which, by the way, comes with a copy of Where There Is No Dentist. So it tells you an awful lot about dental care in austere settings. Now, proper positioning actually helps you perform the procedure more easily. For an upper extraction, we call that also a maxillary extraction, the patient should be tipped at a 60-degree angle to the floor. The patient's mouth should be at the level of the medic's elbow. And for a lower extraction, that's different, that's called a mandibular extraction, the patient should be sitting upright with the level of the mouth lower than the medic's elbow. So one side for the upper teeth at the level of the medic's elbow for a lower extraction, mandibular extraction, level of the mouth lower than the medic's elbow. Now, right-handed medics should stand to the right of the patient, left-handers to the left. For uppers and most low front lower extractions, it's best to position yourself right in front. For lower molars, however, some prefer to position themselves actually in back of the patient. The medic needs to wash her hand and put on gloves. They also have a face mask. That's, I think, a good idea because there could be some splatter. And some eye protection is also an excellent idea as well. The area around the tooth should always be kept as dry as possible so that the area can be easily visualized. There's going to be some bleeding, so you want to paste, place cotton rolls or balls around the tooth to be removed. These are things that we have. Rolled gauze squares also work in a pinch. We have all of this stuff in our dental kit. These may have to be changed from time to time as you're doing the procedure. Now, teeth are anchored in their socket by ligaments, just like a lot of things. And these are fibrous bands of connective tissue. These ligaments have to be severed to loosen the tooth. And this goal is best, best accomplished with dental elevators, instruments which come in various shapes. Some appear like a screwdriver with a very small head, others like a tiny shovel, a, a chisel, or an arrowhead even. 
Now, once loosened, instruments called extraction forceps are used to remove the teeth. These are specialized for each type of teeth, incisors, canines, premolars, molars. Indeed, there are actually more types of extractors than there are teeth. Once positioned, the procedure goes as follows. Number one, you separate the gum from the tooth. There's an instrument called the spoonex, and this is placed between the tooth in question and the gum on all sides and helps to separate the two. If you skip this step, the gum may tear during the extraction, causing bleeding that's going to slow the healing process. Now, step two, you want to loosen the tooth. You want to use that dental elevator I just talked about to go between the tooth and the bony socket. Use your index finger for support against the tooth in front of the one that's being extracted and apply pressure with the head of the elevator to get down to the root area. You got to get down to the root area. That's your goal to sever the ligaments that are holding the tooth in place. Expect some bleeding when this happens. Now, number three, well, it's time to extract the tooth. Take your extraction forceps and grasp the tooth as far down the root as you possibly can. Now, this will give you the best chance of removing the tooth in its entirety the first time. If you can do this, the procedure is a whole lot less complicated. For front teeth, which have only one root, exert pressure straight downward for uppers, straight upward for up, uh, lowers. For teeth with more than one root, such as molars, well, a gentle side-to-side -side rocking motion will help loosen the tooth further as you extract it. Once loose, avoid damage to neighboring teeth by extracting towards the cheek rather than towards the tongue. This is best for all but the lower molars, which are furthest back. These are sometimes called wisdom teeth. Now, uh, step four, not uncommonly, a tooth might break during the extraction. If that's the case, you want to use your elevator to identify and further loosen the root. Then you want to extract it from the socket using the instrument as maybe a lever, usually that you can pull it out that way. Now, step five, you want to control post-extraction bleeding. You want to place some gauze on the bleeding socket, have the patient bite down on it, and in most cases, bleeding should be light and should stop within a short period of time. Now, if excessive bleeding does occur, products such as Axel or Kytosan hemostatic gauze can be cut into small, moistened squares and placed directly on the bleeding area. It should form a gel, which, should be, which can be rinsed away with water in about 24 hours. Alternatively, layers of 2x2 two two inch gauze, we also call those 2x2s, two can be used to place pressure onto the socket by closing the mouth. Now, your last step, you may have to actually place a suture, and that could be required if the bleeding is heavy and direct pressure with gauze just fails. In that case, you want to use 40 plain gut, chromic gut, or 40 vicryl or PGA absorbable suture material. You want that stuff to go away on its own and the wet environment of the oral cavity is something that will help it do that. Now, without some of these items, improvisations may be necessary. Now, in a Cuban study, they actually use veterinary superglue uh, that's called cyanoacrylate, very carefully used, by the way, in over 100 patients, at least we hope, uh, with good success in controlling both bleeding and pain. Dermabond is a prescription medical glue available in the U.S. That's been used in some cases in U.S. emergency rooms. Now, after the procedure, liquids and a diet of soft foods should be given to decrease trauma to the sensitive area while it's healing. Hot liquids and hard foods, however, should be avoided for 24 to 72 hours. You want to expect some swelling, some bruising, some pain over the next few days. Cold packs will decrease swelling for the first 24 to 48 hours. Afterwards, you want to use warm compresses to help with jaw stiffness. That's definitely going to happen. 
Use medicines such as ibuprofen, 200 to 400 milligrams every four hours, or 600 to 800 milligrams every eight hours for pain. Alternatively, acetaminophen, 500 milligrams every four hours, should also help for pain. Some people stagger the two medicines, and that's an also uh, an acceptable way to, to deal with that. You want to also begin warm saltwater rinses after the first six to eight hours. Now, you want to stay away from aspirin because it could hinder the blood clot, which, uh, which naturally forms in the socket. That's a, supposed to be a protective thing. That blood clot is your friend, so make sure not to smoke, spit, use straws that might dislodge it. Uh, that causes a condition called alveolar osteitis or dry socket. With this condition, you may notice the clot has disappeared and the patient has throbbing jaw pain and very, very foul breath. Antibiotics and warm salt water gargles are useful here. A solution of about eight fluid ounces of water with one to two drops of clove oil may serve to decrease the pain. Don't use too much, however. It could burn the mouth. Although not all agree, antibiotics given just before or just after extraction may reduce the risk of infection and dry socket. Amoxicillin, 500 milligrams, cephalexin, 500 milligrams, or metronidazole, 500 milligrams, are options and are, well, at least right now, available in veterinary equivalents. And now, a word from our sponsor. Ladies, are you tired with all those hunky, muscular men flexing their biceps at you while you're doing important stuff? What do you do to defend off all those guys who put on the Hawaiian Tropic and bronze themselves? Well, before you slather on that fake summer tanning product, best-selling author Amy Alton, also known as Nurse Amy, wants you to get a copy of her new book, How a Can of Raid in the Face Solves All Your Man Problems. You'll be glad you did. Available at fine bookstores everywhere. Hey, one of the problems a family medic faces in a long-term disaster is, well, medicine, right? Even the decent stockpiles accumulated over time, like a lot of our family medics have that are in the preparedness community, well, the commercially produced drugs, those are going to eventually be expended, leaving even the most skilled provider without some very important tools to help deal with injuries and illness. Planning your own medicinal garden, honestly, is the best way to provide alternatives to modern medicines in austere settings. Until pharmaceuticals were produced in factories, well, people had to grow their own medicine. This practice was a normal part of our heritage and provided needed remedies for a lot of medical issues. The community oftentimes had a person who served as an herbalist and supervised the cultivating and processing of these substances. So growing your own medicinal garden is not a bad idea. It's both rewarding and beneficial. The, gar gar the gardening learning curve, however, can be pretty steep. So don't wait until the situation becomes critical to get started. Same thing with food gardening. You want to obtain some gardening supplies, assess the weather and the soil conditions in your area, and figure out what medicinal plants might actually exist in your own backyard. I'll bet there's some that do. Now, the medicinal plants that you select should match the climate as much as possible. For some, that means that the herbs must survive the winter. For others, the summer heat or dry periods. The Department of Agriculture publishes what we call plant hardiness maps. These are divided into 10 degree Fahrenheit zones and serve as a standard by which gardeners and growers can determine which plants will do well at a particular location. Part of the decision-making process is whether to plant annuals or perennials. This may confuse the beginning medicinal gardener. Given that annuals is defined, are defined as occurring every year or once a year, 
Some plant them expecting new plants every spring, but that doesn't necessarily happen unless you collect the seeds and you replant them. So, truthfully, despite the dictionary entry, when applied to plants, annual means completing the entire life cycle in one growing season, and that's it. Now, there are perennial plants, herbs like lavender, mint, thyme, sage, and rosemary, and those will last and come back on a regular basis. Now, examples of annuals, well, those would include things like dill, fennel, and basil. Once you've identified the plants with medicinal benefits that match up with your zone and your likely needs, select a well-drained sunny area with healthy soil. Now, although some herbs grow well in shade, most plants actually need about at least six to eight hours of full sun for proper growth and development. Potting is appropriate for medicinal plants that might need to be taken inside during a cold winter. Uh, water should be provided, by the way, on a regular basis to allow the soil to stay moist, but never muddy nor waterlogged. Soil in many areas must often be amended for the best results. For a well-draining soil, you want to mix a potting soil with perlite and peat moss or coconut core with your natural soil. Perlite is a lightweight white granular material that's uh, lightweight, sterile, and easy to handle. It's neither alkaline nor acidic. Uh, perlite absorbs water, but it also improves drainage. Now, coconut core, that, by the way, is spelled C-O-I-R, not C-O-R-E, is the material between the outer shell of a coconut and the inner shell. You might have seen it as the liner for many hanging flower baskets. It's inexpensive, reusable, available in compressed bales, holds up to 10 times its weight in water. It's pretty amazing. It helps provide good aeration when mixed with water and native soil. Plus, like perlite, it's pH neutral. Coconut core also helps resist a number of insects and diseases. So on top of your mix, you want to place some... Once you have your mix, you want to place some mulch or pine straw to hold in moisture and reduce weeds. Now, composting is an excellent way to enrich your soil. Compost improves the soil by helping it retain more moisture and allow for more airflow. It also provides nutrients for plant growth. Gardeners make compost with grass clippings, leaves, shredded paper kitchen waste like uncooked vegetables and fruit peels and other organic matter. Now you'll need a large container with a lid. Some newer composters actually come in tumblers that allow you to periodically turn the compost for more oxygen. Then what you want to do is you want to put the compost materials in, cover with some soil and or some herbivore manure. By the way, dog, cat, or pig poop is not good. It has a higher chance of containing parasites. Cow manure has the most nutrients. Uh, microbes, they slowly degrade the container contents and it turns it into nutrient-rich compost. Now, adding some red worms actually increases the process. The worms eat the plant matter, uh, matter and poop what we call worm castings. Worm castings are organic matter that contain a mixture of bacteria, enzymes, remnants of plant matter, and other substances. They help prevent the soil from becoming too acidic or too alkaline. For organic pests and disease control, consider putting together a soapy mixture of one tablespoon of neem oil, one tablespoon, one teaspoon actually, of Dr. Bronner's lavender, peppermint castile soap, and perhaps a few drops of tea tree essential oil in about four to eight cups of water. This combination makes a great natural disease and pest control. As a preventative, you want to spray foliage in the late afternoon of every five to seven days or after a heavy rain. Shorter intervals are acceptable, however, if current diseases or pests are being treated. 
Now, you may be able to grow warmer climate plants by protecting them from the cold with greenhouses or by using row covers. This will expand the range of medicinal plants you might choose to grow either in pots or around your homestead. Okay, so now you can sow your seeds. Different plant seeds are placed at different depths in the soil. Usually it's best to plant too shallow than too deep. Now some, like certain lettuces, aren't buried at all, actually. They're just placed on top of the soil. A good general strategy is to plant seeds at a depth which equals two to three times their width. A layer of mulch can help maintain even moisture levels in dry conditions. Make sure to read the seed packet for specifics though every plant is different. Some seeds like some herbs like mint and comfrey rarely produce viable seeds, so cuttings are another option. A cutting is a section of plant originating from the stem, leaf, or root that's capable of developing into a new plant. This strategy involves placing the section in water or some other growing medium until roots develop. You'll need a sharp scissors or razor blade, a healthy mother plant, a soilless potting mix, some rooting hormone, and maybe some small containers, maybe four inches or so. Soilless mixes like perlite, vermiculite, sand, and coconut core are also used because they have less microbes that might inhibit root growth. Water can be used instead of a mix, although planting it afterwards seems a little bit less successful than with the mixes. Cuttings taken from new, green, non-woody stems make for easier rooting. Look for a stem with a bump somewhere near a leaf attachment. This is an area from where new roots will actually emerge. Use a clean scissors or razor blade dipped in alcohol and cut it at about a 45 degree angle just below the leaf attachment. That's sometimes called a node. The cutting should be a few inches long and contain a leaf or two plus the node. Although a leaf is necessary for photosynthesis, too many leaves, well, or a leaf that's too large, will take away energy from root creation. So if the leaf is large, you might even cut off a portion from the end. Your chances of success might be higher with rooting hormone. Rooting hormone stimulates the formation of new roots. You want to dip the nude into, node into some water and then into the rooting hormone. You tap off the excess because too much actually decreases the success rate. And you use a stick to make a hole slightly wider than the cutting. That will prevent rooting hormone from being knocked off the plant. And then place the plant, firm the soil around the cutting, and stabilize it. You want to place the whole thing into a plastic bag. This keeps the humidity high and holds in heat. Air is important, however, so don't seal the bag completely. Keep in a warm area with a little light, but full sunlight is not necessary until new leaves form. Watch for two or three weeks, discarding any failed rootings. There are going to be some failures. And after this, a gentle tug on the plant should show a little resistance, which is a sign that rooting has occurred. Now, at this point, guess what? You have a new living plant. Now, with regards to harvesting, every plant is different. When to harvest even depends sometimes on the part of the plant involved. Flowers are harvested when they open, but before they're pollinated. In general, flowers should be harvested on dry days before the intense heat of the sun removes the fragrance from the petals, but after the morning dew has dried. It's preferable to take just the amount of plant material you're ready to process for use or storage. Otherwise, rapid deterioration could occur and degrade the medicinal benefit of the herbs. Herbs can be preserved by oven or air drying, and then stored in a sterile dark glass jar with airtight lids. For the longest shelf life of, of about 12 months, make sure conditions are cool, dry, and dark. Vacuum, vacuum sealing the jar will help. Of course, the strength of a medicinal herb depends on climate, soil conditions, and other factors, like just like vintages of wine. Um, each year, matter of fact, might yield higher or lower quality of effect. 
In addition, many have risks if used in pregnancy or in those with certain medical conditions, especially those people requiring blood thinners. There's a whole lot more to putting together an effective medicinal garden when the medications run out, and Amy's going to talk a little bit about some of those factors. Now, I want you to diligently research the data on every herb that you're interested in, decide which will do well in your area, and meet your medical needs. So don't delay, by the way. The last thing you want to do is go through the gardening learning curve after you're thrown off the grid. Well, Dr. Bones was talking about soil and... He actually got that from some of my favorite ingredients when we are growing our gardens. I use raised beds and pots because the soil in South Florida absolutely is horrible. The pH is off, really doesn't have a lot of nutrients. Uh, Frankly, I'm surprised uh, grass grows, although I will say our grass is not real grass. It's crabgrass and it's horrible. (laughs) So we can grow coconuts and some palm trees, but Honestly, if you want to grow food, you really need to create your own soil Um, using some things uh, like Dr. Bones talked about would be great, but there's a secret ingredient that I don't think a lot of people understand and have not really talked about when they discuss gardening. I do talk about it in my earlier videos on YouTube, and it's called mycorrhizae, and that word actually means it's very simple it literally means fungus root and it describes a mutually beneficial relationship between the plants that you are growing or that grow on the earth because 95 percent of all plants utilize mycorrhizae in their growth to bring water to bring nutrients and we'll talk about some of the details about that in a few minutes Um, but it's a relationship between the plants that you see externally and the roots that are in the ground that join with the fungus. Um, These special mycorrhizae colonize with roots of plants uh, in the symbiotic manner, which allow the physical roots of the plants to extend further into the soil to draw nutrients, to draw water that they might not otherwise have access to, which is really interesting, especially when you have terrible growing conditions. Uh, This is especially important for people who have uh, low water and also, you know, desert, uh, drier conditions, just not the most ideal, you know, rainforest type of environment. So this is important, and, and we can add these. And so let's talk a little bit about them. Uh, The filaments of mycorrhizae uh, in the soil are truly extensions of the root system and are more efficient in nutrient and water absorption than the actual plant roots themselves. I think that's really interesting to know. Like I just said, more than 95% of terrestrial plant species form a symbiotic relationship with beneficial mycorrhizae fungi and have evolved this symbiotic relationship over the past several hundred million years. I've seen 400 million. I highly doubt that they can pinpoint exactly, although what they would have to do, I guess, is find fossils of this mycorrhizae and then be able to determine how old those fossils are. Sounds kind of impossible to me, but they think at least several hundred million years. Um, These fungi predate the evolution of uh, terrestrial plants 
which means they were here before the plants that we all have seen and even we have seen um, in a lot of um, fossils. Um, it was a partnership with the fungi that allowed plants to begin to colonize dry land. Because remember, according to evolution, we start in the ocean. So these plants, these fungi allowed plants to colonize dry land and create basically the life on earth as we know it. So pretty deep stuff there. The mycorrhizae symbiotic relationship centers on the plant's ability to produce carbohydrates through photosynthesis, and they share some of these sugars with the fungus as a payment. Here, here's some carbohydrates to the mycorrhizae in return for otherwise unavailable nutrients that are sourced from the soil or growing media by the extensive network of the fungus's hyphae produced by the, by the mycorrhizae. So they, they just, it's like an extension. It's like having, you know, an extra pair of hands to go out and get water for you and get nutrients and bring it back to you. But your hands are only a certain length, but these extend it. So it's really amazing that this is grown. This is underground. We can't see them, but they're helping 95% of all the plant life that you see on earth. There's something called endomycorrhizae fungi, and, and those rely on the plant and the plant's performance and survival are enhanced by the fungus, the symbiotic. One relies on the other. Mycorrhizae fungi can colonize plants from three main sources of inoculum. They can get it from spores. They can get it from colonized root fragments and also from vegetative hyphae. Collectively, these inoculants are called propagules. And this is the standard unit of measure that is listed most commercially uh, on most commercially available mycorrhizae products. So when you get the product description, you're going to hear them mention propagules. To colonize plant roots, these propagules must be present in the substrate or the, your soil and in close proximity to actively growing roots of a compatible plant. The growing root tips emit root exudates as they push through the substrate or the soil, which signal the fungi to colonize the roots and establish the symbiosis. In other words, they get together. Once the roots are colonized, then the process is self-sustaining as the mycelia or the my mycorrhizae continue to grow with the plant's root system. In other words, as the roots grow, the mycorrhizae grows and expands. And additional spores and hyphae are produced. This is how this has ended up connecting basically all the world's plants. Propagules can be incorporated into the substrate prior to or during planting. I do this while I'm planting new seeds. I will take the mycorrhizae and I will make a little paste uh, depending on how big the seeds are. Like if I'm doing corn. I will cover the corn in a paste of the mycorrhizae and then plant each one of them. So it's already there. When I'm making new soil or producing new raised beds or pots, I incorporate the mycorrhizae into, say, the top 8 to 10 inches of the soil so that when the seed's planted and the roots begin to grow, it's all around so they can begin to grow together. You can also 
put the mycorrhizae on top and then water it down into the roots. So there's several ways you can put this in. Uh, you can, if you're putting a cutting into the ground, you can, again, make a paste, dip the cutting into the mycorrhizae paste and stick it in. Get it in there as soon as possible. If you forget when you put seeds in and it starts to grow, you can do the top dressing so as you to not disturb the root system that is beginning, you know, the little bitty root systems. You don't want to go digging in there and mess them up. So you can water it in, but just water it in really well. Uh, you're going to basically drench it. So just apply it to the outer surface um, if you have to when you forgot. Otherwise, like I said, it's, it's better to go ahead and put it in when you make the soil or just before you plant. You can also backfill the soil, um, you know, kind of scoop out some soil around what you feel is the root ball and then place the mycorrhizae in there and then uh, fill back the soil. So basically what happens is the propagules from the mycorrhizae inoculum, in other words, you're inoculating, form a symbiotic relationship with the growing root system. The mycorrhizae hyphae proliferate, in other words, start growing around the surrounding soil, increasing the plant's effective rooting area, which now allows macronutrients and micronutrients and water to be transported to the plant. So what are some key benefits? Like, why are you doing this? I mean, obviously I'm talking about it bringing water and bringing nutrients, but, but really what, what are all of the great things? Mycorrhizae root system growth. The mycorrhizae fungi support faster root establishment. So if you're transplanting something that has some roots already and you're putting it in a new pot, a new, new, new soil that it wasn't in before, this mycorrhizae can help it get established much faster. It allows that to access water and nutrients beyond the root zone and deliver them to the plant's vascular network. It increases absorption area beyond the roots by as much as 50 times. Did you hear that? 50 times the width, the length, the reach of the roots is increased. And it increases the overall root biomass. So it it helps the plant to make more of its own roots also. For nutrient efficiency, mycorrhizae hyphae absorb and actively deliver nutrients directly to the roots. Like a trucking system, it goes out, shops for it at the grocery store, and brings it back to the roots. It's amazing. It improves utilization of soil nutrients, including nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, and micronutrients. And anyone who plants a garden knows that every single one of those is vital to having a healthy plant. And what do healthy plants do? They resist infections. They resist disease. They will grow faster and produce more food for you if they're getting proper nutrition. It's just like our bodies. If we just eat, I don't know, candy and cake all the time, we're not going to grow very well. Well, we'll grow, but we're going to grow in bad ways. We're not going to be very healthy on the inside. Let's talk about water absorption. Mycorrhizae hyphae absorb and transport soil moisture from way beyond the root zone to the plant's roots. The mycorrhizae symbiosis increases the plant's effective water utilization capacity. It improves tolerance to water stress during drought, during 
masses of water and then no water. It allows the, the roots to drink when they want. The mycorrhizae will go get it, bring it to the roots. When the roots say, hey, I need some water, here's some carbohydrates, it will bring it. So it keeps a, a more steady hydration to the roots than just whatever the rain system is going on. So some other benefits uh, to your plants and the in, in environments along with the three that I just mentioned are improved soil structure, greater transplant success, inc increased stress tolerance, reduced nutrient runoff, and a lot more. Uh, this biological technology is beneficial really to any industry involving soils, plants, people. These symbiotic organisms have been relied upon for successful reforestation. In other words, like Gatlinburg here, the Smoky Mountains was deforest. I mean, the, these most of this mountain area was chopped down for lumber. It was nearly bald. I think around 90% of the land around here was just had no trees whatsoever. And somehow mycorrhizae got in here and help these plants grow and it doesn't even look like anything happened although if you do see some that did get chopped down you'll see that they were quite huge and beautiful i'm sure it was gorgeous before they broke it down landscape architects installers um, maintenance workers have been utilizing mycorrhizae inoculants in transplanting and sustainable landscape design for at least the last 20 years I personally have been using this in my garden I would say I really found out about this probably in 2009 2010 so about 14 13 years in all my raised beds and pots so homeowners who are planting gardens or caring for their own uh, lands excuse me lawns landscapes uh, you guys can use this too I mean this is not just for um, the professionals. This is for all of us who are trying to grow our own food or, or whatever it is you're trying to grow. There are two types of mycorrhizae fungi. Uh, one is used 85% of the time for plant families and this is called endomycorrhizae fungi and they pair most with uh, commercially produced plants including uh, green leafy and fruiting or flowering plants. Those penetrate into the root cortex and form the nutrient exchange that we talked about structures within the root cells. Then there's ectomycorrhizae fungi. They form symbiotic relationships with about 10% of plant families. They mainly pair with conifers and many American hardwoods. They do not penetrate the root cell walls but form a sheath around the root and nutrient exchange structures known as Hartig Net, and that's H-A-R-T-I-G-N-E-T, like our net, our web net. So um, you're reading these labels, you're trying to say, yes, I want to buy this, what do I do? Um, one of the many benefits of adding mycorrhizae into your growing practices is the fact that these beneficial symbiotic organisms are involved in building a healthy ecosystem for your plants and within the growing media rhizosphere. 
And like any healthy ecosystem, biodiversity is very important. So again, when you're reading these labels, you want to make sure that there's lots of different ones. This is like us taking probiotics. When you get a probiotic, you don't just want one type of probiotic. You want a variety because a variety is great. These probiotics, you know, different ones do different things. So it's like putting probiotics in the soil for your plants. You want to have a variety for a healthy ecosystem. So get the one with the greater number of species. Definitely. You want to get a mixture of the endomycorrhizae and the ectomycorrhizae. Get both. It's going to offer greater benefits to your plants throughout their entire life cycles. Research has actually shown that diversity of the mycorrhizae in the plant root system is important as these different species of the mycorrhizae provide different benefits to the plants under variable circumstances. In other words, sometimes one of these mycorrhizae is great for the roots and for another reason, some other circumstance, maybe it's drier, maybe one of them brings more water and another one brings more nitrogen. For instance, some species are better at assisting in nutrient uptake and others are more proficient in assisting the plant with water efficiency and others are responsible for mitigating toxins and salts from reaching the plant's vascular system. Super important. Poisons might be in your soil that you didn't even know about. If you garden somewhere and and someone else owned the land before you, you don't know what they put in it. You're not sure. This can actually help protect your plants. Really important. Again, we're not just talking about raised beds and pots like I use, but your whole garden. You can do this because they're going to grow underground and reach all of your plants together and be there long after those plants have ceased to grow, your corn finishes growing. It's still going to be there. The next time you plant something, the mycorrhizae will go, oh, good, new roots. Let's, Let's help those. So they stay there as long as you don't poison them. Research has also shown that different species of mycorrhizae provide different benefits during different seasons. The summer season, the fall season, the spring season, the winter. And they do some of the heavy lifting early in the growing season. And others kicking in during the warmer, drier months. And others providing benefits toward the end of the season, growing season or throughout the winter. Therefore, it is recommended that when you're choosing products, make sure you have greater diversity with at least four species of the endomycorrhizae and at least seven species of the ectomycorrhizae products in the bag, the container, whatever it is that you're getting in order to ensure that you're providing the ideal soil microbiome for your growing needs, whatever it is. Again, your garden, your pots, your raised beds, whatever it is. Uh, This has been, again, an incredible thing. I really feel that my plants have been healthier. They've grown better. Uh, I can't say that I have done a a study where I had one pot that I added and one pot that I didn't. Um, To me, that's like feeding one child and not feeding the other child. I could never do that ethically. So I give all of my plants mycorrhizae. And I have to tell you, they have been thriving and wonderful and and giving us some beautiful food hey here's a segment of our show where i take questions posed to me in the past often on our friend jack spirko's survival podcast if you have questions you'd like to hear me address on the podcast make sure you send us an email at drbonespodcast at aol.com we're looking forward to them here we go
Today's question for the expert counsel comes from Adam who asks, are there any supplements that help extend the life of the cartilage and knees? I'm 43 years old and my knees are starting to make crunchy sounds. I went to a bone and joint specialist and he stated that the cartilage behind my kneecap was thinning. When I asked if there was anything I could do to prolong the life of it, he told me to avoid stairs and vertical steps when possible. Well, that's not really possible in my line of work, so I'm hoping there's something else that can help. I may have chosen the wrong place to go by asking a doctor who replaces joints for a living how to make the original equipment last. Thanks for any advice, Adam. Well, Adam, let me just head over to my desk here so I can answer your question. Those are my knees crackling there. (laughs) So, Adam, some doctors honestly give advice that isn't practical for a lot of people. Orthopedics has advanced a lot from the time when they spent most of their time sawing legs off, but it's probably not helpful to tell you to never climb stairs again at age 43. You probably still have a lot of second floors to get to before you're done on this planet. The crunching sound on your knees is known as crepitus. When hurt in the lungs, it actually could be a sign of pneumonia, but in your knees, it's caused by the rubbing of cartilage on the joint surface during movement. When it's painful, there's the likelihood of scar tissue or maybe loose or torn cartilage or other orthopedic problems. If it isn't, well, no specific treatment is actually necessary. For those who don't know, cartilage is the smooth elastic tissue that covers the ends of bones. Its purpose is to allow the bones to glide easily in the joint. But over time, the cartilage surface actually loses its smoothness. The crunching you hear is due to the cartilage becoming rough so the bones don't slide as easily as they once were able to. Over time, arthritis can develop. Osteoarthritis can occur at any age, but it usually starts when people are in their 50s. It's the most common form of arthritis, especially in older individuals. It can affect just about any joint in the body, and it's known to be pretty much irreversible. Hands, hips, knees, and spine are the most affected, often beginning in an isolated joint. Osteoarthritis symptoms usually develop slowly and worsen over time. You should look out for pain with movement or after activity, stiffness, often first thing in the morning, tenderness when pressure is applied to the joint, loss of range of motion, a grating or crunching sensation when using the joint. Some people hear popping or cracking instead. This is what you're dealing with, Adam. Swelling, which might be caused by soft tissue inflammation around the joint or even by fluid accumulation in the joint space itself, and the formation of bone spurs. These are extra bits of bone which form around the affected joint. Just because you're not an old geezer like me doesn't mean it can't happen. Many athletes develop this type of arthritis in, for example, the knee at a relatively young age. Obesity is also a factor due to the increased strain on weight-bearing joints. To help prevent additional knee problems, work on strengthening the muscles in the front of your thigh. These are called the quadriceps or the quads. Walking, biking, and swimming can all be useful for strengthening the quads. If you get strong quads, it takes some of the load off of your knee joint. That makes it less likely the cartilage in the joint will wear down. Warm compresses are useful to treat discomfort and stiffness. Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, NSAIDs, like ibuprofen or aspirin, relieve pain, as does capsaicin cream or ointment. The worst cases may require oral or injectable steroids, though, but it's not an option in austere settings certainly if you're talking about survival medicine. Experts also recommend natural medicines and treatments for joint pain. These are available in drugstores, health food stores, and and online. Supplements like this might boost the body's anti-inflammatory response. Options include the antioxidant-rich curcumin found in turmeric. Curcumin capsules had a similar effect on knee osteoarthritis as the anti-inflammatory drug diclofenac in one study. 
139 people with osteoarthritis took either a 50 milligram tablet of diclofenac twice a day for 28 days or a 500 milligram curcumin capsule three times a day. Both groups said their pain level improved, but those who took curcumin actually had fewer negative effects. Resveratrol is another nutrient that has antioxidant and anti-inflammatory properties. It's found in red grapes, tomatoes, red wine, peanuts, soy, teas, a lot of places. In a 2018 study, scientists gave 110 people with mild to moderate osteoarthritis of the knee 500 milligram dose of resveratrol or a placebo combined with the NSAID drug meloxicam. People who took resveratrol found their pain drop significantly compared with those who took the placebo. Then there's Boswellia, Boswellia serrata. That comes from the resin of the frankincense tree. Herbalists use it to treat arthritis, and boswellic acids may decrease inflammation and promote joint health. Other options include omega-3 fatty acids found in fish oil, devil's claw, and type 2 collagen. Some people use glucosamine, chondroitin sulfate, or a combination of the two for osteoarthritis of the knee. There have been large studies, randomized controlled studies, on glucosamine and chondroitin sulfate, but interestingly enough, they haven't provided consistent results. There's simply just not enough available research to determine their effectiveness. Just keep in mind that few have been proven clinically effective, and some may have adverse effects. Indeed, the Food and Drug Administration doesn't regulate supplements at all, so there's no way to precisely know what a product contains. For these reasons, the American College of Rheumatology and the Arthritis Foundation, for example, don't recommend using supplements that you would think are standard, like glucosamine. Adam, you probably don't have arthritis yet, but it's something that you should watch out for, and I hope some of these strategies will help. This is Joe Alton at Old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times are bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, learn more about arthritis and 200 other medical topics in survival settings with a copy of the greatly expanded fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, the essential guide for when help is not on the way. You'll be glad you did. Well, that's all the time we have. You've been listening to the Survival Medicine Podcast. For Amy Alton, I'm Joe Alton, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.
Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Amy Alton, ARNP of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.